Well, this morning we are returning to the Gospel of Luke. We've been out of Luke now for several weeks, for a, a month or so, and we're returning to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in chapter 23, verses 26 down to verse 49 today. We have four sermons remaining, Lord willing, in Luke, uh, as we look to coming to an end of this, of this, finally at a point in my Bible where I don't have to turn the page, I can see the end of it, uh, these very long chapters, but uh, looking forward to our time this morning and the next few weeks as we conclude our series through the Gospel of Luke. This morning again, we're in chapter 23, verses 26 down to verse 49. I'm gonna pick up reading here. Again, just to kind of review where we've been, um, Jesus has been uh, basically delivered uh, to the authorities. He has uh, endured a trial of sorts and has now been delivered over to the religious leaders for what would be his crucifixion. And we pick up with that in verse 26. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 26, Luke writes, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid him on the cross to carry it behind Jesus. There followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse." Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. 
and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. You know, as we come to this point in Luke's gospel, we really come to what's the the climax of the biblical narrative as a whole. Every Old Testament sacrifice, all the promises that we find in the Old Testament, every sin brings us to this pivotal moment that we find Jesus being crucified to a cross. In fact, everything that has come before this passage and everything that will come after it hangs on this momentous moment in Jesus's earthly ministry. Indeed, we could say this is the center of the Christian faith. Without the crucifixion, without the death of Jesus, there would be no Christianity. When we read this account, it's clear that Jesus is put to death by evil men. He was innocent, yet he was condemned to die. But it's important that we see the ultimate reason that Jesus was nailed to a cross. In his famous book, well-known book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott, I think, sums it up quite well. He writes, although, speaking of Jesus, although he knew he must die, it was not because he was the helpless victim of evil forces arrayed against him or any inflexible fate decreed for him, but because he freely embraced the purpose of the Father for the salvation of sinners, as it had been revealed in scripture. And then he goes on to say, this final self-sacrifice was his hour for which he had come into the world. Think about that, brothers and sisters, as we think about the, the life and ministry of Jesus. This was the hour, the moment for which he came into the world. He came for this reason. This was indeed his hour. And as such, it becomes your hour and my hour as well. As we look to Luke's account of the crucifixion, we can look at this and we should look at this from various perspectives. One, we should look at it as a, as a narrative, understanding the characters that are at play here. There, there are people, all kinds of people within this, this narrative and these people have a place to play in this, in this account. We should also see it from a historical point of view, understanding that, that this falls within the course of human history, fulfilling that which the prophets had foretold. And certainly we should see it from a theological perspective, understanding that as Jesus dies on the cross, he's dying as an atoning sacrifice for sin so that our sins could be forgiven once and for all. And so we understand this from from this narrative, from this historical and theological perspective. And as we walk through this account in Luke's gospel, I think he presents several things for us to consider Indeed, we're going to look at four ways the cross speaks into our lives and helps us understand our position and our lives as Christians. Four things that we need to see from the cross according to Luke. The first thing that we come to in this passage is what we could call a sobering word, and you see it in verses 26 through 31. A sobering word. Jesus has just been handed over to the 
Roman authorities, or, or certainly to the religious leaders and then to the Roman authorities, and they lead him away to be crucified. You see that in verse 26. He's just endured a trial, and now he's going from the trial to the execution. And he's on the way, and on the way to the place of crucifixion, they, they recruit a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene to help Jesus carry the heavy beam. Often when, when people were led to a place of crucifixion, that the cross beam that they would be required to carry, that they would be hung on, they would be required to carry themselves, and many of them, because they've, and if you look at the other gospel accounts, the, the other gospel writers fill in these gaps that, that Luke doesn't include here, but we understand that Jesus has endured quite a beating already. He's endured a lot of, a lot of, of turmoil and trauma to his body, and so he's oftentimes would be, have been unable to carry this heavy beam to the place of crucifixion, and so um, they recruit this man named Simon to help him carry the cross. And as they make their way to the place of crucifixion, we're told that a great multitude followed, including some women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Now, these women that are mourning and lamenting, they, they don't seem to be the disciples, the, the women who were part of the group of the disciples. These women seem to be part of the larger crowds that day, and they merely seem to be responding as any decent human being would respond watching a man undergo such tremendous suffering. They are lamenting his pending death. And it's interesting as they, as they lament in verse 27, as they mourn the, the situation regarding Jesus, Jesus turns to them in verse 28 and engages them in conversation, sort of conversation. He does engage them. He, he, he engages them not to thank them for their sympathy, but to correct them for their, from their error. He, he points out that they were lamenting the wrong thing. Look at verses 28 and following. Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. See, Jesus is pointing out that his pending crucifixion is not the true tragedy at hand. The true tragedy was the fact that Jerusalem, Israel as a whole, generally speaking, had rejected the Messiah and they would soon undergo judgment for their refusal to embrace the Messiah. Indeed, he goes on in verse 29 and following. He says, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What Jesus is doing here is he is, he's giving a prophetic word. He is giving a prophetic warning a reference to judgment that was soon to come, in fact, would come in AD 70, when Rome would respond to a Jewish revolt with devastating consequences to Israel. What happened in AD 70 was the fact that the Romans came and sacked Jerusalem, and the people of Israel would undergo some of the worst human suffering that they've ever known. It was a horrible time for the Jewish people. Conditions were so bad that Josephus, a Jewish historian, speaks of people attacking each other for food 
and even in some occasions, women killing their children. It was a time of suffering so intense that people longed to die. That's the reference of wanting the mountains to fall on us and the hills to cover us. Jesus is telling these daughters of Jerusalem, these women, some would say that these women are kind of representative of Jerusalem, but he's speaking to them, he's warning them of this coming judgment, and he's saying, that's what you should be lamenting. And then he finishes with this rhetorical question in verse 31, with this somewhat strange reference to green wood and, and dry wood, and he says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In other words, he's saying that if this kind of fate falls on someone like Jesus, a reference to the green wood, then just imagine what kind of fate awaits the dry wood responsible for his death. Again, the point in all this is, is straightforward. It's, it's simple. Jesus is telling these daughters of Jerusalem not to mourn his death, but rather they are to mourn their pending judgment. They are tragically weeping for the wrong thing. The true lament from this text really comes from Jesus. On his way to a cross to be killed, he's lamenting the fate of Jerusalem. The greatest tragedy of all is not the fact that Jesus would be crucified. The greatest tragedy was the fact that Jerusalem didn't believe the Messiah had come. And his final message, really what we could say, that the final message to the, to, the, to the crowds was this message of warning. This, this message of, of coming judgment. It, it's, it's as if Jesus gives one more opportunity. I mean, he's got a crown of thorns on his head. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. I mean, his body is tattered. And here he's warning them of what was to come. I think this scene is so instructive for us as Christians because we live in a world that is often focused on the wrong things. We are surrounded by people that are caught up with so many things and they're lamenting and mourning over so many things, sometimes good things, but sometimes completely strange things that they're missing the most important thing. I think it's a good word for us to be reminded that as followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility. Think about that. If Jesus on his way to his death, in just a few hours, he would die. And on his way to his crucifixion, he is still telling the world that judgment is coming. Giving opportunity one more time for the daughters of Jerusalem and Jerusalem as a whole to look to him and to have hope. Friends, as the church, we have a responsibility to warn the world that God will in fact come to judge the world one day. One of the privileges, it's a privilege. One of the privileges that we have as the people of God in this world, knowing that Jesus has died and has been raised from the dead, 
sits in heaven at the Father's right hand has promised to come again, one of the privileges that we have is that Jesus has done everything needed for your redemption and for the redemption of the world. He's coming again one day. And we have the joy and the privilege to be able to tell that to a world that completely misses it. Let's be reminded that through this sobering word that Jesus gives, it's a word of judgment, a word of, of, of warning, but yet it's an opportunity for these still to have hope. Second thing that we see from Luke here is we call a deliberate sacrifice, and that's in verses 32 through 43. I think it's important for us to be reminded, especially as we make our way out of the trial that Jesus endured in chapter 23, He's arrested, chapter 22, he's, he's, he's mocked, he's, he goes before Pilate and Herod and then back to Pilate and now he's been turned over to be crucified. If we're not careful as we're reading the gospel narrative here in Luke, for example, we can, we can be caught up with, with all of the human agency behind the crucifixion. Well, it was Pilate ultimately, it's his fault. No, it's the Jews' fault. No, it's the Romans' fault. It's all of them. It's, and you, you get caught up with the human, with the human element. And, and certainly there's a piece of that, but we need to understand as we're making our way through this narrative that the crucifixion was not merely the acts of evil men. It was a deliberate act of God for our salvation. Picking up in verse 32, we see Luke's account of the crucifixion. We're told that Jesus, along with two others, were all led away to be put to death. And in verse 33, and when they come to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Several things I want us to see as we think through the cross through Luke's account of the crucifixion. I think three things that, that we at least see here, there's tons more. This is, this is one of those passages that you could spend months in, but I want us to see several things here. First of all, we see that Jesus identifies with sinners. In verse 32, we see Jesus would not be crucified alone. He could have been, right? I mean, he could have just, God could have sent him, he could have fulfilled his ministry, could have been taken out to the place of the skull. The Jews would call Golgotha, the, the Romans would call Calvary. So as we hear those words, it's the place where Jesus is crucified. They would take him out, he could have been crucified there by himself, accomplishing the, the very same thing that's accomplished. But that's not what happens, he's not crucified alone. Two criminals would also be condemned to death that very day and their place in this narrative, I think, is important. More is said about them in, in verse 39. So we, we see that they're crucified, one in his right, one in his left. And then verse 39, look, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? And save yourself and us. But then the second criminal rebukes the first criminal and then make some very important observations before asking Jesus to remember him. See that in verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? He's talking to the other criminal. 
Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Brothers and sisters, this scene is important for us and should be instructive to us because here we have an innocent man being condemned alongside the guilty. Isn't that a picture of what Jesus is accomplishing here? The innocent one suffering in the place of the guilty. He's identifying with sinners, understanding that he's innocent. He, he did not sin, and yet he is paying the penalty for sin. Not his own, but for ours. Isaiah, the prophet, speaks of this moment in that glorious chapter of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah's looking to the day when the, the coming Messiah would be crucified. He, he says in verse four of chapter 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Isaiah continues, and in then verse 12 says, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. As Isaiah speaks of the day when the promised Messiah would come and bear the penalty for sin, become a sacrifice for sinners, we're told that he would be numbered alongside with, among, among the transgressors. And that's exactly what we see here in this text. Jesus is being crucified among criminals. He's identifying with the sinful. But the second thing that we see is not only that, that he intercedes for sinners, Jesus intercedes. In verse 34, we, we know that, that Jesus, if you compile all the gospel accounts, there's multiple sayings that Jesus says, expresses from the cross, and one of the things that he says is actually a prayer, and you see it in verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We know that he likely had the Roman soldiers in view, perhaps a, a prayer for the larger Jewish population as well, especially as you consider other texts text in the book of Acts. But what we see here behind this prayer is, is really the true heart of Jesus. I want you to contrast Jesus' prayer with the mockery that he receives from others. The mockery that he receives Jesus is praying in verse 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, but then look what happens. And they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching and the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourselves. They even nailed a, a, a sign above him that said king of the Jews. They were mocking him. 
But Jesus prays for them. The leaders taunt Jesus, but he prays for the leaders, for the Romans. Friends, what we see here, even in death, Jesus continues to focus on his redemptive purposes. As Jesus prays, he's demonstrating the same standard he sets for his disciples earlier in in Luke's gospel. In chapter six, verse 29, where Jesus instructs his disciples to pray for your enemies. He's modeling the very thing that he called us to do. Think about that, even in this great act of evil and injustice from a human perspective, Jesus still desires their good. Think about how he's been treated, how he's been falsely accused. He's been beaten and mocked and now crucified. And even at that moment, he's still praying for them. Friends, I wonder if that same, if that same heart attitude could be true of us, could be said of us. Even when we look at the world and all of its evil and all of its attacks against Christianity and, and all of the things that, that we often are, are, are criticized for, or whatever the case may be, I wonder if our posture even with all the division that, that, that exists in society today, I wonder if our mindset, the prevailing mindset among Christians, among us, is that of Jesus, praying for our enemies, longing for their redemption. See, I'm afraid that, that oftentimes that the prevailing mindset, at least in me and my heart, is justice. Give them what they deserve not grace. Brothers and sisters, does your heart truly desire the salvation of the wicked? Do you long for the ungodly, the unjust, the perverse to experience the forgiveness that God gives? Is that something that is often informing your prayers? Or are you calling down fire from heaven instead? Jesus has died. He's just been crucified by people who mock him and he's praying for their forgiveness. God, help us to have the same spirit, to pray for our enemies, to pray for the forgiveness of sinners. The very gift that God has given us, the undeserving, is the very same thing we ought to be desiring and praying for others. Not only does he intercede for sinners, number three, he pardons sinners. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he actually is accomplishing the very work sinners need in order to be forgiven. As the two criminals were nailed to the cross beside him, one on his right and one on his left, one of them turns to Christ in faith and one continues in rejection. I you to see particularly the one criminal, not the one that that mocks Jesus or rails at Jesus, but the one who responds in faith. Several things that you need to to see about the the criminal who, who responds positively to Jesus. Several things he acknowledges in this brief exchange as he's dying as well on the cross, in this brief exchange he has with the other criminal and and with Jesus, just several things compacted into this brief conversation that, that speaks volumes. 
Several things that we see, he confesses his own guilt and the guilt of the other. Notice as he says in in verse um, 40, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and indeed justly? He affirms not only his own guilt, but he affirms the justice of God. They're they're getting what they deserve. They're, they're, They're paying the consequence for their, for their crimes. But not only that, he, he confesses the righteousness of Jesus. But this man has done nothing wrong. We indeed are suffering the sentence justly for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man, he's innocent. Not only does he confess the righteousness of Jesus, he assumes the kingship of Jesus. The kingship of Jesus. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And after that, he relies upon Jesus as part of that. Here's the one, the one criminal rails at Jesus, but here's the one criminal that's trusting in Jesus, believing in a kingdom he cannot see as he hangs alongside the king who he can see, putting his hope in him, even at this final moment of his life. And we see in verse 43, Jesus welcomes him and says, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You know, it's interesting when you think about this from a theological perspective, we often think about the, the three offices of, of Jesus, Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And right here in this text, you see those three offices magnified, don't you? Jesus is functioning as prophet as he warns the daughters of Jerusalem by prophesying judgment that's coming. He's he's speaking God's word to them, warning them, functioning as prophet. But he's also functioning as priest as he intercedes on behalf of the very ones crucifying him and by becoming the sacrifice needed to grant us acceptance with God. But he's also present as king as he paves the way forward for the one criminal and all others who would look to him by faith for them to be received as new citizens in the kingdom of God. Even on the cross, the ministry of Jesus cannot be deterred as he functions as prophet, priest, and king to his dying breath, accomplishing the redemption and gathering himself a people even as he takes his final breath. Friends, this passage should resonate with hope to our ears. Jesus shows us that even the vilest offender, the worst of sinners, can be received into the kingdom if they would but repent and believe. Friend, is that you? Do do you feel as if your sin is too much for God to forgive? Are you still seeking God's approval through, through other ways? Friend, please know that the only way you can find true forgiveness of your sins and welcomed into the kingdom of God is by following the example of this criminal who, who, who acknowledged his guilt, acknowledged the right justice that he, was being, that he was receiving and put his hope in Christ. As those who have been redeemed, the cross reminds us where our hope 
begins and ends. It didn't begin with something we achieved. As I say many times, God doesn't just meet us halfway. God went all the way to the cross and paid the penalty we deserved to be now received in faith. The reality that we enjoy should very much inform our relationship to God as we think about the cross. Listen, the Lord is not some box to be checked at some point throughout the week. Like I'm a big to-do list guy. And, and one of the things that I don't put on my to-do list is um, acknowledge God today. Think about the cross. Follow Jesus. I mean, that's just, that's, that should be bleeding out in everything we do. The Lord Jesus is to be the center of our joy and our life. And when we find ourselves struggling or find ourselves lacking joy or lacking peace or lacking hope, it's because we have taken our eyes off the cross and put them in somewhere else. We're forgetting the price that has been paid for our redemption. Brothers and sisters, We live because Jesus died. Every evil thought, every bitter deed, this would be lyrics in a hymn somewhere, every sin you've committed or thought about committing was nailed to the cross as Jesus dies and pays the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if you, if you would just pause and just reflect, we are the guilty criminal and we have been fully pardoned because Jesus paid the price at the cross. You see this sacrifice, it's a deliberate sacrifice to accomplish the salvation we desperately needed. Two other things I want us to see from this account. Third is what we could say is a a validating witness. Look at verses 44 through 46. When Jesus was suffering and dying on the cross, there were some strange things that happened that day. As Jesus gets closer to his final breath, the day grows dark. We're told that the crucifixion begins at the third hour of the day, which would have been 9 a.m. We're told at the sixth hour, which would have been midday, darkness fell upon the entire land and remained until the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m. So we're talking about daylight hours, whether you're in Eastern Standard Time or whatever the time is, like it's daylight. But when Jesus is dying, darkness descends upon the land. And in fact, if you read other gospel accounts, as, as you put all the gospel accounts together, other things happened, earthquake. People who had died were resurrected and walking in town, people seeing them. These supernatural things were were happening alongside of Jesus' suffering. But you think about this darkness. It was now the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, we're told, verse 44. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Think about darkness. Darkness during the day when you look at other biblical accounts, especially in the Old Testament, 
Darkness during the day was often a, a sign of judgment. This is a significant symbolic point. When this literally happened, God's making a, a, a point. Darkness in the Bible typically points to unfolding judgment. You can look at Amos 8 verse 9, Joel 2 verse 10, Zephaniah 1 verse 15. And here the darkness descends when the day should have been filled with light. And so what we find is Jesus is enduring the greatest act of judgment the world has ever known as he dies and darkness is there to validate that fact. Not only that, we're told the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Likely the curtain outside the most holy place. And friends, this was not just any curtain. It was a double curtain that reached some 90 feet tall. I don't know how tall this is, but it was a lot taller than this. And no human would just come and, and rip that curtain. When it was torn in two from top to bottom, it was the, the doing of God. As the curtain is torn, the Lord is now showing the temple's function has now come to an end as the meeting place between God and man. Jesus is the final sacrifice. There's no other need for sacrifice. Jesus dies as that final and ultimate sacrifice so that, that access to God could be enjoyed. The darkness and the curtain here are two events that no human could have accomplished. The death of Jesus then is being accomplished, we're told, here through these validating witnesses by the hand of God. Both these being signs that attest to the work of God that's, that's unfolding through the death of Jesus. Judgment for sin and access being open now to God through Christ. These are validating witnesses to this account. God using supernatural events to make very important points. Then last but not least, we see a call to respond when you look at this passage, there are lots of people here. You've got the crowds, you've got the criminals, you've got the Roman soldiers, you've got the centurion, you've got Simon, you've got the women. There's, there's a host of people here. And there are various responses to what's happening here with regard to Jesus and his crucifixion. But technically, there are only two responses that we could point to categorically speaking. Those who reject Christ and those who receive Christ. Those who reject Christ we, we see are represented by the crowds and by the rulers and the, the mocking soldiers. We're told that a, that a great multitude was following. In fact, the crowds, that their rejection of Jesus is largely a quiet one. Now, we know that they were part, at least many of them, were part of the, the court of public opinion prior to, to, to Jesus being released over to the, to the authorities by Pilate. But now most of them are standing at a distance watching all of this unfold. Just watching. But friend, even, even their silence here speaks. It shows us that, that you can reject Jesus. You, you don't have to be a Roman soldier or a Jewish religious leader that's adamantly opposed to Jesus, 
actively opposing Jesus, doing everything they possibly can to, to get rid of Jesus. You don't, you don't have to be actively engaged in, in doing away with Jesus to reject him. You can be just like the crowd, watching from a distance and just letting it be. You also do have the, the rulers and the soldiers. They've schemed and now they, they've crucified Jesus and openly mock Jesus. But there's also those who receive Jesus, the repentant thief, and probably the centurion, who here says certainly this man was innocent in verse 47. And another gospel account, we know that he said, surely this man was the son of God. He praises God. Luke really leaves us here with with this scene with an important question to ponder. Will we receive Jesus as did the criminal or will we remain opposed to him, whether quietly or more actively? Told that this event had an impact. Verse 48, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Luke leaves us with that question. It's showing us that the cross does not leave space for neutrality. It leaves us all with this important question to consider regarding our status before God. Do we see the cross as the one and only true way to be reconciled to God or whether complacently or actively or in whatever other way do we say, no, it's, it's not relevant. And have you looked to Christ and cried out in faith to him, in him? Or you just stand back and watch. All these years maybe you've been sitting in a church building. All these years, no, really no different than the crowd, just, just watching, watching your text from afar. No, no belief, no faith, just watching. Yeah, that happens. Well, friend, it happens so that your sins could be forgiven. And it happened as a testimony to God's love for sinners so that if you would repent of your sin and put your hope in Christ, you could be forgiven forever and adopted into the kingdom and welcomed into the kingdom of God. That's why this happened. Not so that you can just say, oh, it happened. As Christians, the cross has much to say about our walk. The cross is the grounds from which we live our lives. Therefore, we must regularly look to the cross and be reminded of the price that was paid for our redemption. Luke chapter 23 is not a text just for the non-Christian. Christians, it's a text for you to look back to, to be reminded of, to understand my sin was paid for right here on the shoulders of Jesus. That, that hymn we sung earlier, the third verse, 
how deep the Father's love, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I love what he says, the hymn writer says, I can't give an answer. Why should I gain from the death of Christ? There's no answer. You didn't deserve anything from God. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Fellow Christians, that is your testimony. And that is a testimony you need not forget. The fact that the Son of God came to this earth and bore upon his own shoulders your sin and your debt so that you could be forgiven and pardoned and understand not just eternal life, but life full of joy and peace forever. Don't forget that. It was his hour, but that hour informed eternity. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to be able to come before you this morning and to look at your word in this pivotal moment in the life and ministry of Jesus when he goes to the cross and does exactly what he was born to do, dies in our place so that our sins could be forgiven. And Lord, we, we're, we're grateful to know that, that a sacrifice has been made for us. There's no way, Lord, that we could have done anything to, to earn or gain your approval or favor or forgiveness on our own, but Lord, we, we can have full pardon and full acceptance because Jesus died and bore our sin on the cross. Lord, we rejoice because we know that when Jesus died, he did not remain dead. Three days later, he was raised. And next week, if you tarry, we will look at that text and be reminded yet again of that glorious hope. Father, today as we contemplate the, the horror, the agony of the cross, Lord, would you remind us today that this is the very foundation and source of our standing with you. Had this not happened, we would not be yours. Father, would you impress this deep within our hearts today and would you remind us, would you help this to inform everything that we do and, and, and say in this life that we may please you. Lord, it may be that there are some who are here or even watching that, that have never been, maybe they're, they're for the first time, they're, they're, the dots are clicking, they're, they're connecting, and, and, and this is starting to make sense to them, to understand that the only way for their sin to be forgiven is for them to come to Jesus. Lord, would you be at work in them and bring them to a saving faith in Christ this very morning? Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us to pay the penalty for our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.